This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employers respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. What kind of programs does this school have? How are the test scores? How many kids do a classroom? Homes.com knows these are all things you ask when you're home shopping as a parent. That's why each listing on Homes.com includes extensive reports on local schools, including photos, parent reviews, test scores, student-teacher ratio, school rankings, and more. The information is from multiple trusted sources and curated by Homes.com's dedicated in-house research team. It's also you can make the right decision for your family. Homes.com. We've done your homework. Double Elvis. The 27 Club is a production of iHeartRadio and Double Elvis. Ron Pigpen McKernan died at the age of 27. And he lived a life that was never intended to last for long. I can give you 27 reasons why that statement is true. Seven would be the number of minutes he would masterfully growl out Otis Redding's hard-to-handle on his first trip to Europe, all while feeling a nagging, profound pain. Another three would be the number of weeks he would spend in a hospital bed upon returning from that trip. Seven more for the number of weeks after that hospitalization that he'd once again hit the road against doctor's orders. Another two would be the number of months he would travel the European countryside while his body began to make it clear to him that it wasn't built to last. And eight would be the number of months he had left to live after Pigpen played his final show at the Hollywood Bowl in June of 1972. All totaling 27. On this, our ninth episode of season five, Profound Pain, Ignoring Doctor's Orders, Traveling the European Countryside, and Ron Pigpen McKernan. I'm Jake Brennan, and this is The 27 Club.
Ron Pigpen McKernan hung on to the microphone stand. His hat was pulled low over his eyes, long goatee scruffier than normal. His leather jacket was as worn and road-tested as its owner. His legs were weak. It looked like the microphone stand was necessary to combat gravity. Gravity was winning. Pig had spent most of this particular trip in his bedroom. An overwhelming feeling of fatigue had plagued him since the Grateful Dead landed in France in the confines of Chateau d'Auville, the palatial estate where the band had taken up residence, suited him better than any excursion into town. Not that he wouldn't have liked to hit the local pub or have taken the 40-minute drive down Old Paris, but he felt like shit and could barely drink anymore anyways. The 18th century chateau had recently been converted into a recording studio. It would soon be the site where Elton John made Honky Chateau, David Bowie recorded Low, and the Bee Gees conceived Saturday Night Fever. But even now, in June of 1971, it already felt like the decadent playground that catered to the whims of rock stars seeking luxury. But as the rest of the dead were enjoying games of tennis, swims in the pool, and good French wine on the grounds of the 230-year-old property, Pigpen opted for the comfort of patio furniture and French cigarettes. His weight loss started to become noticeable, and while Pig would never be accused of having a healthy or well-maintained complexion, his skin was now a whiter shade of pale. But here he was, back at the microphone, a literal support system, the only thing that made any sense to him anymore. The Grateful Dead had made the trek across the Atlantic for a three-day festival in France, but the weather conspired against them. It poured. The festival was rained out. The dead didn't come all this way for nothing, though, and so they decided to host a party at the chateau. Pigpen noticed that the crowd had assembled inside was different than most crowds. It wasn't like the place was filled with French-speaking deadheads. The population of the small village had gathered around the large pool, and foreigners to both the band and the music they were playing. But the vibes were right. All it took was a little booze, a little music, and a few buckets of electric Kool-Aid circulating through the crowd. Things were starting to heat up as the band kicked into a cover of Otis Redding's Hard to Handle, and Pig stood still as a statue at the mic stand. The opening guitar lick hit him right in the stomach, and Billy's snare and kick rattled the rest of him. Just like that, the sickness, the weakness, it all started to dissipate. The tension was partially released as Pig started to float above the music. He belted out the first verse, his voice noticeably weakened. But something was building on the stage and inside Pig. It was hard to feel weak and weary with the immaculate engine of the dead running so powerfully behind him. Pig bent threw up his hand as the chorus started, and he started to feel something he hadn't felt in a while. He felt good. Pig closed his eyes and everything fell away, if only for a few minutes. He began to shake his head and roll his shoulders around, and there'd be no outrageous dance moves, and there'd be no voluptuous summons made to the audience, but... Pig was there, as he had always been, behind the mic, growling out some down and dirty tunes with an authenticity that was unmatched by anyone else in the group. He went inward as the music took him somewhere else. The scene felt like some sort of fever dream. It was midsummer in northern France, on a historical state where it was rumored the composer Frédéric Chopin had once conducted a scandalous love affair, playing to a crowd with no other intention but to feel and dig the music. And the energy was fresh. It almost felt like the early days in San Francisco. Six years in the past and 6,000 miles away. Whether it was the acid, the wine, or the warm summer breeze, 
There was something special happening, something magical. But it was not San Francisco. The band had been battle-tested by hard years on the road, shady business dealings that had ultimately caused the recent departure of Mickey Hart, a shroud of death of both family and close friends, and though all original members were still standing, they were not the same group. And this was not the same pig pen. As the last chords of Hard to Handle rang out, Pig faded to the rear of the Dead's impromptu stage and picked up a tambourine. His energy was spent. And that's where he stood for the rest of the set, serving little real purpose, just keeping time. But was Pig keeping time or timing out? The Dead wrapped up the show and jetted back to the States, where the success of the previous year's releases, American Beauty and Working Man's Dead, as well as their reputation as a live act, made them a hot commodity on the concert circuit. On top of that, they had finally begun to make some real money, so the engine of touring kept on turning. And Pigpen was leaning back into one of his original roles. The Dead, suddenly a skeleton crew of just five members, relied on him to play keys throughout the show, every night. And the Dead weren't just easing back into a full slate, they were diving back into the typical four or five gigs a week. But after just a few weeks, Pigpen began to run out of gas. At a show in New York, Pigpen felt an intense pain shoot through his stomach. A pain that was exponentially worse than anything he had ever felt before. Sure, touring and travel were intense, but Pigpen had been careful. Earlier that year, thanks to the concern of Jerry Garcia and the rest of the Grateful Dead, Pigpen hit a clinic and found a way, against all odds, to kick his drinking habit almost completely. The booze, which had been a part of Pigpen's whole vibe since the very beginning, was suddenly no longer essential to his life. He started eating healthier, started taking care of himself, and started to understand that limitations existed. And the pain started to become manageable, until it wasn't. It built up and built up over the following weeks, and something felt terribly wrong. And by mid-September, Pig was in a hospital bed in Novato, California, just north of San Francisco. He checked himself in, and after a few rounds of tests, it was determined he had a bleeding ulcer, a direct result of his congenital cirrhosis. And though his issues weren't a result of his drinking, drinking wasn't helping. His days knocking back bottles of Thunderbird were over, but he was lucky his life wasn't as well. One by one, the members of the Grateful Dead visited, and those who could donate blood to their brother-in-arms did. They didn't know how bad it was. They didn't know how close they were to losing their bandmate and their friend. And they didn't know that this wasn't just another bout of sickness. The doctor made it clear to Pigpen that he was in brutal shape, and that his chances of walking out of the hospital alive weren't good. Twenty-one excruciating days passed within the sterile white hospital walls. Pigpen slowly transitioned from an all-liquid diet to solid foods. The doctors, nurses, and orderlies delivering cartons of milk were a sad substitute for the life Pig had gotten used to on the road. The medicine they gave him could only help so much. He'd have to make another serious change to his lifestyle. And he wasn't the only one making changes. The Grateful Dead were once again riding the carousel when it came to their lineup. Pigpen's recent health scare didn't just convince them that they may need to add another member to fill in but that they may need to add another member indefinitely. What if next time was the last time for Pig? Jerry, Bob, Phil, Bill, they were all bound by eternal love to their brother. But Pigpen's health was one gamble the suddenly flush Grateful Dead could not take.
Bill Kurtzman was hammering away at his drums. He watched Jerry Garcia carefully over his kit. Jerry's brow was furrowed. He was deep in thought, but he wasn't looking at Billy. He was watching the man sitting at the keys in the dead studio space. And the man sitting at the keys was watching his own hands. He'd heard these tunes before, but he'd never sat down and tried to work them out. He just knew they felt right. Jerry pulled a classic Jerry move and hit an unexpected change, shifting songs on a dime. Billy, who was used to just about anything at this point, fell in right behind him. And to their amazement, so did the man at the keys. Jerry and Billy continued their musical onslaught, unloading their entire arsenal of improvisations and styles, recreating the organic energy of a jam with the dead and how the musical communication worked, the back and the forth, the give and the take, the setting of the dead spaceship on a course for some distant constellation, and then taking a scenic tour of every planet on the way back to Earth. The man at the keys didn't miss a beat or a change. He wasn't flashy. He simply fit. The man was Keith Godshow. Just months before, he and his wife Donna had met Jerry after a dead show. Donna walked right up to Jerry and pointed at Keith. She looked Jerry square in the eye and told him who his next piano player was going to be. Jerry wasn't unfamiliar with this scenario. Since Tom Constantine's departure, the dead had been inundated with piano players looking to join the group. Typically, the propositions went nowhere. But now, with Pig out of commission for the foreseeable future, Jerry was starting to take the bait. Keith had some real technical skills and training on the keyboard, but he wasn't as experimental as Tom. And though he had soul and proclivity for rock and roll, he wasn't as loose or raw as Pigpen. He didn't try to do too much, and he wasn't limited in any capacity. He just fit. Jerry and Billy knew it as they wrapped up their little jam session. They told Keith to come back the next day. After a few hours rehearsing with the full lineup minus Pig, the decision was made. Keith was in. He signed his contract that evening, and by the time the band had rehearsed with Keith for a month's time, it felt like he had been there all along. When October 1971 rolled around, the dead and Pig faced a hard reality. The group was heading back out on tour, only this time it would be without him. Their original source of inspiration. They visited Pig at home where he was resting. They assured him that he wasn't out of the band, he wasn't being replaced. When he was given the green light by the doctors and felt up to it, he would be gladly welcomed back into the fold. And Pig took it to heart. For two months, he sat at home while the Dead's tour dates through October and November went off without a hitch. And although they would put plans for a new album on hold due to the shuffling of their personnel, the band was once again cooking, with new material beginning to take shape. Keith's wife, Donna, joined the band as a vocalist, further injecting a new energy into the live sets and giving the band an even larger, more well-rounded sound. Donna's credentials were stellar. The female vocals on Percy Sledge's 1966 classic, When a Man Loves a Woman, that was Donna. And the backing vocals on Elvis's 1969 comeback smash, Suspicious Minds, and that was Donna, doing it. Back at home, Pig was getting itchy feet. He'd started taking care of himself in a way he'd never done before. And the booze was completely out of the picture, and he was following the doctor's orders in regards to diet, specifically a mix of health food and juice cleanses. But though he was starting to feel back to normal, he was alone. His relationship with V was beyond strained. His band were out gigging around the continental United States without him, and here he was, laid up at home in San Francisco with just a carton of smokes to keep him company. Bullshit. There was only one thing Pigpen ever wanted to do. Only one thing he had ever done. 
Just weeks prior, he thought his life might come to an end. Every day, hour, minute, second was precious time to him now. So what the hell was he doing, wasting it at home? Pig consulted his doctors. He wanted to rejoin the dead on the road. The docks were leery. It was a dangerous proposition. It just wasn't a conventional choice for someone recovering from a medical ordeal such as the one he had just experienced. The word conventional meant fuck all, pig man. He hopped on a flight and jetted across the country, touching down in Boston on December 1st. But for all his bravado in the face of his physical state, the fact remained that he was not the same pig pen. The new diet and the time in the hospital, the treatments he'd undergone, that all left him looking like an entirely new person. Pig wasn't tall, but he was robust, looked healthy, was never someone you'd call thin. But the sickness that had ravaged him the past year had also ravaged his weight, slowly taking pieces of him away. And now he was thinner than ever, with a gaunt look about his face. He looked as though he could be blown over by a strong breeze. When the dead saw him, they were both delighted and dismayed. It was Pig, the man who had guzzled down more bottles than they could count, who shot guns, who whipped crowds into frenzies with his sensuous dance moves, who embodied the very essence, soul, and attitude of what the Grateful Dead were trying to do. The guy who dressed like a biker, sang the blues like he lived them a hundred times, and performed like a man possessed. The exuberant, effervescent, energetic enigma. Shit, man, there was nothing enigmatic about the way he looked now. Like a shell of his former self. Like he walked right up to the doorstep of death, knocked on the door, and then turned around and walked back again. The band hugged their friend, felt how delicate he was, bones protruding through his pale skin. They didn't have time to be rattled by the situation. The show, as they say, must go on, and though the dead were subdued backstage, their live performance showed no signs of grief or worry. For two nights at the music hall in Boston, the dead sounded tight, like they hadn't missed a beat. Keith had dropped into the group, and the machine was as well-oiled and efficient as ever. They just kept chugging along, and Pigpen sat behind his organ, playing sparingly. He was, after all, rusty and out of practice. He gazed out at the audience. Were they really there? Was he really here? It all felt like some surreal dream. Time seemed to fly by, and before Pigpen knew it, it was his turn to step to the microphone. Center stage. He hadn't played in months. It had been years since Pig experienced that type of gap in performance. And not only that, but he didn't have his usual liquid to grease his wheels. And there was no veil between him and the audience. And no fermented aid to promote his confidence. No deterrence from the stage fright that always seemed to linger. That was until Billy slapped out the opening snare lick to a tune Pig had written with Robert Hunter earlier that year. It was bluesy, it had a funk to it and a groove that felt right. And Pig gripped the microphone with confidence and belted out the first verse to Mr. Charlie. Just like in France, the Grateful Dead seemed to hold the antidote for Pig. For three and a half minutes, it felt like Pig was back in the fold. Close your eyes and his voice provided a window into the past, but listen closer and there was something else there. Something you couldn't quite put your finger on. A distance, some pain. His return was undoubtedly triumphant, but it was also starting to become abundantly clear. Ron Pigpen McKernan was on borrowed time. We'll be right back after this word, word, word. This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. 
When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global. Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. Okay. I love Walker Hayes. He's amazing. He's so fun. Such a great entertainer. And that's why I'm so excited that JCPenney and country music singer-songwriter Walker Hayes are partnering together on a new limited-time men's collection for the everyday guy. The Walker Hayes for JCPenney collection is an upbeat playlist of instant classics with laid-back appeal and down-home vibes. As a dad of seven kids, he knows exactly what fathers want and need when it comes to their style. This collection reflects his casually cool styles with outdoor-inspired details and versatile colors. Perfect for the guy living the t-shirt life or someone wanting some fresh options that feel just as good. It's easy to wear affordable styles that celebrate the ultimate family man, along with the quality, durability, and sensibility dads appreciate. Available online Saturday, May 4th at jcp.com and in-store Thursday, May 16th, just in time for Father's Day. Limited time only. JCPenney, make it count. Pigpen's body slammed to the floor. The fall jarred him from his deep sleep, and the bumpy movements of the bus he was in kept him awake. His stomach, his kidneys, his liver, everything hurt, and the fall from his bench seat made it feel like his body had been shattered to pieces. Going down the road, feeling bad indeed. Pigpen pulled himself off the floor with a grunt and sank into the previous position. He had almost gotten used to the process by this point. It wasn't unusual for him to be thrown from his seat during the course of the last four weeks on this bus. Every time the driver hit a large pothole or took a wide turn, when the bus tipped just a little to one side, Pig would just slide off his seat down to the floor with a pitiful thud. It had the potential to get real old real fast, but it was hard to be ornery with the view he had. He gazed out the window at the French countryside. England, Denmark, and Germany had all passed by like some sort of magical dream, and now this... Even after a month of touring in Europe, Pig still had to pinch himself from time to time. 
And then a dull ache shot through his stomach. And the tour may have felt like a dream, but Pigpen was facing some very serious realities. He pulled his pack of smokes from his jacket pocket and lit one up. The dead were traveling through Europe on two buses. The other bus, the fun one, roared past the one Pig was riding in. Someone in a clown mask looked out the window. Pig grinned. The Bozo bus, aka the party bus, was setting the tone for the entire tour. Riders had taken to wearing clown masks they'd picked up in Amsterdam and had rearranged the interior, pushing couches together, turning bench seats around to make booths, keeping a fully stocked refrigerator, staying up through the night, all hours of the day, and consuming whatever happened to find its way on board. It was the spiritual spin-off of the Festival Express train, and it was somewhere Pig wished he could have been. But he wasn't, and that was by his own choice. It would have suited a different pig pen, a pig pen from what felt like a lifetime ago. He took a long drag on his cigarette, and he surveyed his own bus. This bus, known as the Bolo bus, was far more subdued. Mostly a place to get some rest, and getting rest was something Pigpen was doing plenty of these days. He had spent most of the tourist travel time perched on his bench at the back, watching the wheels and chain-smoking. The tour had been a rollicking jaunt through the European countryside for the rest of the band, but not for Pig. It was some sort of meditation on life. He'd battled to rejoin the band the December before and was working hard to maintain his health, but it was equally hard not to get swept up in the casual business-like approach to it all. Whether or not Pig would admit it, the popularity of the Grateful Dead had inflated them to certified superstars. They were just as revered as the bands they had once looked up to, the bands holding down the top places in the charts. Unlike those bands, however, the Grateful Dead weren't releasing massive singles. It was their commitment to playing live and their recent run of impeccable albums that made them a cultural touchstone and a household name. Thousands of kids began showing up at the Dead shows, some of them hoping to score tickets but unable to get in. So the Dead started playing bigger venues to keep costs down. And once they went big, they never looked back. Something was changing in the relation to the audience. This wasn't the acid test of old, and it wasn't just five guys getting up on a stage at a club and hammering out some blues covers. The dead were playing basketball and hockey arenas, massive venues. And if they wanted to keep their fans' wallets in mind, there was nothing they could do about it. The only way to make their show affordable was to make their show bigger. They had to become a machine that just kept turning. And now they had returned to Europe not just for a long weekend in an impromptu show at a chateau, but for an eight-week-long conquest. The entourage in Europe was well over 50. Wives, girlfriends, roadies, children, managers, all stuffed on the two buses. And there were also hundreds of pieces of sound equipment. This was more like a military operation than hauling gear around in Bill Kritzman's station wagon. Regardless of the newfound popularity, regardless of the new host of hangers-on and shady visitors backstage pushing harder drugs, and regardless of whether Pig had felt up to it or not, there was no way he was missing this. But the logistics of the Dead's touring and finances weren't the only thing that had changed. Try as he might, Pig was forever changed. On this tour, he combed his hair back, buttoned his shirts neatly, and seemed to be more interested in babysitting the kids that were present than playing cards with the crew and the band. And no calling for his whiskey as much as calling for his tea. Pigpen wasn't just separating from the lifestyle of the group. He was separating from who he used to be, as if he could feel the fuel gauge getting low. Night after night, show after show, Pigpen would sit behind the Congos, shake a tambourine, or play sporadic fills on his organ while the dead grooved. And they did fucking groove. 
It was the actualization of everything Jerry and Phil had dreamed about to that point. The lineup was just the right balance. Sure, they'd lost Mickey, but Keith and Donna filled in the sound like some sort of gift from the heavens, complementing the rest of the group perfectly, further transcending the already transcendent music. For anyone else who wasn't a member of the band, it was hard to even tell that Pigpen wasn't feeling 100%, because when Pigpen was called upon, he could still deliver a convincing vocal performance. Lovely, hard to handle, easy win, Mr. Charlie. Pigpen still brought them all to life with his unmistakable fervor and passion. And true, he didn't throw out the same shoulder shakes or gyrating hip movements, but his vocals set fire to every ancient, reverent European concert hall the dead played in. That intimacy they had begun to lose playing giant venues in the States remained intact in Europe, even if it was by a threat. These hallowed halls were designed for classical music, so the crowds were up close and the acoustics were just right and the vibrations were warm and happy. But still, there was something in his voice. You could hear it. An urgency to sing every set like it was his last. In due course, Pigpen would finish his tune and return to his congas, tambourine, or organ until it was called upon again. He'd watch the rest of the band work and lose himself in the music. And the next day, Pig would return to his bus, the bolo bus, the quiet bus. He'd crawl into the back seat and light himself a cigarette, preparing for the next hard turn, the next slip, and the next eventual fall. And that next hard turn, that next hard fall, it had nothing to do with the bus ride. pizza joint, known as the top of the tangent, was packed full, as it was most nights in 1964 when there was live music. The beer was flowing and the mood was mellow. The tangent was one of the places to go for music in Palo Alto. Up-and-coming acts, well-known groups, and singer-songwriters gave performances that were ordinarily worth the price of admission. But there was nothing ordinary about tonight's performance. At least he knew that, even if no one else did. He was with his group on stage. Mother McCree's Uptown Jug Champions. They were attracting attention around town, and not just for their lively, eccentric performances. They played old-timey folk, bluegrass, roots music, stuff that had long become niche, but was beginning to come back into fashion. He saw their influence everywhere. Jug bands were popping up all over the Bay Area, but Mother McCree's was the best around. He was biased, sure, but look around the room. The place was jumping. The buzz around his band was so strong that two Stanford University students had made it a point to record them for a local folk music radio show. He wailed on his harmonica from the stage, and he thought it worked perfectly with the washtub bass and acoustic guitar. And no one was calling him Ron anymore. They all called him Pigpen, on account of his disheveled appearance. Not that it bothered him. It was a nickname, his blues name. He'd wear it proudly. He ripped a few more notes from his harp, and they sounded like down home, familiar like the old worn-in jacket he was wearing, like he'd known this feeling his whole life. It was the only thing he wanted to feel, as long as he would live. The Grateful Dead's 1972 tour of Europe was highly successful and proved positive that they weren't just a national sensation. They were a global phenomenon. After a few weeks' break, it was time for the Dead to get back to it, and Pigpen did his best to drag himself along. 
The June 17, 1972 show at the Hollywood Bowl was, for all intents and purposes, a welcome home gig for the Grateful Dead. The conquering heroes returning to their beloved states, bigger and better than ever before. But a dark cloud hung over the group. Pig was frailer, thinner, more gaunt than he had ever been before. He no longer looked like a stray breeze would blow him over. It looked like it would shatter him to pieces. The crowd, however, did seem to notice. As the dead reached the midpoint of their first set, the audience called out for Pig. They wanted a dose of his electric blues. They wanted him center stage. There would be no love light that night. No hard to handle. No easy wind. No, Mr. Charlie. Pigpen spent that evening laboring to keep himself upright. He couldn't even manage to get himself to the microphone. Each time he'd slump over or begin to nod off, someone would slide over and give his chair a gentle bump to keep him conscious. And each time, Pig would shake himself out of his haze and get back to the show, perhaps make it through a tune. But one of those tunes Pig did make it through was a brand new one, the band's live debut of Stella Blue. Pig played organ elegantly behind Jerry's soft, subtle lyrics, and somber yet beautiful words and music about a musician reaching the end of the line, finally succumbing to the physical and emotional trials of life on the road. Behind Jerry's vocal and Pig's organ, the Dead gave an inspired, heart-wrenching performance of the new song. And it was fitting, because Pigpen was also succumbing to the demands of the road and the lifestyle. And for the man who was the original impetus and engine behind Mother McCree's Uptown Jug Champions, the Warlocks, and the Grateful Dead, the show at the Hollywood Bowl would be his last. I'm Jake Brennan, and this is The 27 Club. The 27 Club is hosted and produced by me, Jake Brennan, for Double Elvis in partnership with iHeartRadio. Seth Lundy is the lead writer and co-producer. This episode was mixed by Joel Edinburgh. Additional music and score elements by Ryan Spraker and Henry Lunetta. This episode was written by Ted Omo. Story and copy editing by Pat Healy. Sources for this episode are available at doubleelvis.com on the 27 Club series page. Talk to me on social at Disgraceland Pod and hang out with me live on my Twitch channel, Disgraceland Talks. For more news on your favorite podcast, follow at Double Elvis on Instagram. Rockarola. What's up for your ears? I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. 
I'm so excited to tell you JCPenney and country music singer-songwriter Walker Hayes are partnering together on a new limited-time men's collection for the everyday guy. What I love about Walker Hayes is his laid-back nature. He's a family man and being a country megastar while also having seven kids. You know he likes to keep his style cool and casual. This new collection is perfect for the guy living the t-shirt life or someone wanting some fresh options that feel just as good. It's easy to wear, affordable styles that celebrate the ultimate family man along with the quality, durability, and sensibility dads appreciate. Available online Saturday, May 4th at jcp.com and in-store Thursday, May 16th. Just in time for Father's Day. Limited time only. JCPenney, make it count. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited-time 2% cashback on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024.